Don't that work? Good? Yeah. Um, quickly before, to catch up to speed from last week, I realized after we left, I think I gave you a term and then never went back to it and defined it. And it's kind of a long term, uh, three words in it called consequent absolute necessity. I remember me bringing that up, but then I didn't talk about it. It was on your list last week. But we were talking about um, why did God become man? Why did Jesus come? And obviously, it was necessary that he come to save sinners and to satisfy God's justice so that he might save sinners. And that's kind of what we talked about that whole lesson last week. In one of these phrases I just thought, throughout because it's an important phrase in church history and in theology and I just didn't want it to be confusing to you because it's really a great uh, thing to think about because the atonement of Christ became an, a consequent absolute necessity I am going to define that for you this time it became that because of the covenant of redemption you remember us talking about the covenant of redemption that before time began God, within the Godhead, there was a covenant made to save sinners. Uh, and we know that because the Bible tells us, especially in the New Testament, we see that God had this plan. Um, and it started for us in the garden after the fall. We see God makes that great gospel statement that um, through the seed of woman is going to basically come a Savior. And, and, and really the rest of Scripture is playing that out, how we're going to get the Savior until we get the Savior, and then we see what he does, and then he goes away, and we know he's coming back. But this phrase, consequent absolute necessity, is a way to say that Jesus became necessary. God becoming man became necessary once there was a covenant of redemption in place because there was no other way to save sinners because God had determined he was going to save them. So... Uh, because God chose freely to save sinners, the consequence of that was that God would have to reconcile men to himself. So that's why this phrase, it became absolutely necessary that Christ come and become a man and take on flesh as a consequence of the covenant of redemption. Does that make sense? So it sounds, I don't want it to be confusing and look, you can't open the Bible and turn to you know, Psalm 30 and find consequent absolute necessity. It's not in there. But it's just a way to define and, and, and kind of refine even more why did God become man? Well, the Bible tells us he must come like, he must take on flesh and become like his brothers that he might make atonement for sin because God had determined to save sinners. And something outside this world had to make man right with God. And so God, we say, condescended and came down and be, became a man that he might um, do what Christ did. So Christ becoming man and being perfectly obedient became absolutely necessary as a consequence to um, the covenant of redemption. I just wanted to throw that out there because... I forgot to talk about last week. And I gave you that, and we got off on something else, and I never came back to it. It hit me about Friday for some reason. Like, God, we were talking about that, and I never defined it. So there it is. 
and it kind of helps because today we're going to look at this section six in chapter eight. And it kind of, I mean, all this is together, but this is kind of interesting. And I don't know, we may talk about section seven a little. But I'm saving the next few because it's going to take us several more to get through the rest of this chapter. But let's read section six. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. That incarnation just means when he became flesh. When Christ took on flesh, became a man, was born. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of the incarnation of the redemption was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world, right? And it was done so in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed Christ and pointed to Christ as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and as Christ being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So basically, this section really answers the question, how do those people in the Old Testament get saved, right? And we, I know y'all have talked about this before. Uh, we're going to look at the previous chapter again tonight, the covenant chapter. But I know y'all talked about it some. But the answer, of course, how were the people saved before the cross? Same way the people saved after the cross, right? And that's what this section is saying, is that all the way to this point, we've looked at Jesus becoming flesh. Why did he become flesh? So that he could perfectly obey the law of God and the will of the Father. Perfectly not fail. So he didn't sin, but he's also perfectly righteous. And all that was absolutely necessary because of the covenant of redemption that was already in place. And we learn about that beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Man, God has this plan. And it's and it's fulfilled all the way through the Old Testament and all these types and shadows and sacrifices. Somebody put, somebody put it this way. In the Old Testament, the people looked to the Savior that was to come through the sacrifices, through the types, through all these um, promises. After the cross, everybody looked back at the Savior who fulfilled all those things and we recognize he was the point all the way. And now we're saved because we know who the Savior is. We see what he did. They were saved because they knew who, they didn't necessarily know who he was, but they knew he was coming and they knew what he was going to do. Even though you can say, well, how could they know that? Well, the New Testament says that the gospel was preached to them, right? We're going to look at a passage that says that, especially um, Paul said that the gospel was preached to Abraham. So, this is one reason we try to point out that law and gospel are present from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end. We don't separate and say, well, the Old Testament's law, the New Testament's gospel. No, the gospel has been preached since the beginning. It was preached to Adam and Eve. See if it's going on. 
Um, in fact, if you can back up with me there to, to this section of the covenant. We'll just read through this again real fast because I think it highlights this. And then we'll look at these passages. Um, 7.1 Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they can never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework, right? So again, that's... We see that man had no way to get back to God. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law, by its fall it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. And then it says this covenant is revealed in the gospel. But it was revealed first to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. And this covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction. Here it is, the, the covenant of redemption between the Father and Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. And I'm pretty sure y'all talked about the covenant of works and whether you believe that there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Covenant of works, we believe Adam in the garden was under a covenant of works. If he would have done what God said and obeyed, then it would have led him to life everlasting. And so the rest of the Bible is full of if you want to live and do right, uh, and have eternal life, then do right. But then, if we're honest, we realize, but we can't do right. And even in the New Testament, Jesus continues the rich young ruler or the lawyer that confronts him. What must I do to be saved? And he, what does he tell him? Keep the law. If you want to be saved, and you're going, because those people thought they could save themselves, keep the law, and you'll be saved. But we know that that's not possible. And so the Bible continues and it preaches the gospel over and over that Christ fulfilled that work. Christ fulfilled the covenant of works for us. And our hope is not in us doing something. Our hope is in Christ having already done something right. And that's grace. And that's the gospel. The gospel is good news. The law is not good news. The law is good. It's good because it's right and perfect and holy. And so we don't throw it away. But it's not good news. It's just good. It's bad news to those who realize they're under the condemnation of it. Now, those of us who are in Christ are not under the condemnation of it. There is therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we're under grace. Not under law. So, I was just showing that this kind of this section we're in really and all this does I know Jonathan pointed this out several times the the, the confession builds upon itself you know it, it it's not uh, it's not just a bunch of stuff thrown in a book I mean they're trying to progressively work through doctrines that matter so 
Uh, look at a few of these verses with me if y'all want to look them up. Um, Hebrews 4 and 2. I need the assignment. Who wants to look up Hebrews 4 too? Okay. All right. Let me see. I lost my page. Uh, 1 Peter 1 10 and 11. I got it. Revelation 13 8. Everybody want to stay away from that one, don't you? You got that one? Hebrews 13 and 8. Actually, Revelation 13 and 8 is real interesting and it's. It's almost quoted verbatim in this section, so we need to look at it. Hebrews 13 and 8. All right. And then, of course, uh, I've already mentioned Ephesians 1, but this is just kind of to go back on what we were saying already. All right. Who's got Hebrews 4 and 2? Uh, you, you got Hebrews 13 and 8. Oh, you got both of them. I got you. I, I, I got to know why you said that now. I'm sorry. All right, Hebrews 4 and 2. Actually, read 1 and 2. One answer? Yeah. Okay. Therefore, let us fear lest, while I promise remains a bearing of rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. See, there's that one part that says the gospel was preached to them also. We've heard it, and they've heard it. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's talking about Israel. Old Testament Israel. So, of course, this is the New Testament being written. All right, First uh, Peter 1 and 10 and 11. 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation... Prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Hmm. See, it was just another great passage. See, there wasn't an Old Testament and a gospel. There's been a gospel since the Garden. Of course, we know we know now there was a gospel before the Garden, but it was not revealed until then and then step by step revealed over and over this covenant that God was making uh, with his people. Uh, what's next? Oh, Revelation 13, 8. Right. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name uh, has not been written uh, from the foundation of the world in the book of life uh, of the Lamb who has been slain. Okay. You see, that if you notice, that was the one I was talking about. It's pretty much quoted there. Uh, he, he quotes the seed and, and would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, if you're reading the King James, the wording is a little bit different. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate on was the names written in, in the book before the foundation of the world or was Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? And the best I can tell, and I'm not a language expert, but I think the answer is yes. They're both. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world because, again, there's a covenant of redemption. This is always going to be the plan, right? And also, um, Ephesians 1. Who had Ephesians 1? I don't know if I told you which verses to read. 
we've already kind of mentioned this, but did anybody have that one? Um, well, wait a minute, I went to Galatians. What that was? Uh, just start at verse 3. And, I mean, you can read all of it, all the way to 14, but you can just read a few and you'll see. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, so you see that, I mean, just that idea, and like I say, you can keep reading all the way through verse 14, and it says a few more times we are predestined um, to, to be his sons because of the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. And so I believe, and if I'm not mistaken, I think there's another place, I was thinking there's another place that mentions uh, the book of life and names written in it. I'm trying to think. Uh, but this is very, what is it? Um, I, I just think it's very interesting to see um, this and talk about it because we tend to think, oh, my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life today, I got saved. And there's a lot of songs that, that say that. But according to her confession and the way that this, this has been understood throughout much of church history, your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world because Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And all this, now, but what this, what this um, section points out is um, the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect all through the ages. So I point that out because um, there's a lot of good news in this thought. One is this. God's decree of salvation through Christ's eternal covenant of redemption ensure that the elect of all ages will gather around the eternal throne of God in the last day. So there's no... If there's any kind of teaching that suggests some of the people before have to be brought along some other way, no, this is the only way. Everybody's going the same way. From beginning to end, everybody's going to, everybody's going to gather around the throne of God because of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And because your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And everybody whose name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life will not gather around. And you can't do anything to get your name written in there. It's been written there since before the foundation of the world. But it brings up this question, and I think this alludes, is alluded to later on in another chapter, does this mean we are eternally justified? In other words, is it the same, is it right to say, well, if this is true, then I've never not been saved. I've never been lost. Because it seems, if you think about it, it would make that would make sense, right? Well, if my name was always written there, but I think that's why they, they use this language carefully. It was not actually paid till after his incarnation. And the interesting thing I found out was the men who were involved in writing um, our confession battled with that same argument, and they actually wrote about it. 
And I'm going to see if I can find it here. In, in the section eight, you mean? No, uh, in uh, 13a. Oh, you're talking about in Revelation? Yeah. I, I, I'm not understanding what you're asking me. Uh, the situation is that uh, what it's saying is that all will worship him uh, whose name has not been written uh, from the foundation in the uh, Lamb's Book of Life. So basically what it's saying uh, is that... Uh, some point in time, uh, other than uh, from the beginning, uh, that basically uh, what you've got is uh, you've got people that uh, will believe. Or at least that's the way I understand it. I'm having a hard time tracking you, but it's probably not your fault. <coughs> because this is talking about blaspheming and worshiping a false idol, right? Well, a false god. Because all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the we'll book of life. The beast. Yeah, the beast. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, man, that's been a long day, but I, I'm <laughs> yeah, trying no, to figure no, it out. I, no, now I understand. Okay. That's okay. But uh, it's interesting. You may not think it's interesting, but this question does come up, and I think it's kind of cool to think about what was I ever not saved, and, and I want to respond to that, but I want to read you what the, the writers of the 1689 did uh, in response to it, because their question was whether believers were not actually reconciled to God and actually justified and adopted when Christ died. In other words, this question, well, did anything actually happen when Jesus died? And did anything actually happen when you were born again? Were you actually born again or were you just always eternally saved, right? Because of this idea. This is what they wrote. That the reconciliation, justification, and adoption of believers are infallibly secured by the gracious purpose of God and merit of Jesus Christ, yet none can be said to be actually reconciled, justified, or adopted until they are really implanted into Jesus Christ by faith. And so by virtue of, their, of this, their union with him, they have these fundamental benefits actually conveyed unto them. And this we conceive is fully evidenced because the scripture attributes all these benefits to faith as the instrumental cause of them. So basically, if that is too wordy, basically they answered the question this way. One, let me say, we have to be careful to debate highly things that aren't written for us to understand. Because these are the things we're reading that aren't written, right? We're wondering. But what they conclude is this. You were actually justified when God gave you new birth, new life. At that moment, he unified you to Christ. He adopted you in his family. So it's proper to say, at that point, I was born again. And the Bible says that we were all concluded under sin. Ephesians 2 says we were all dead in trespassing and sin. 
that we are at one time enmity with God. So what they concluded was, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, there was never a chance that we wouldn't be saved. But there was a point in time where we did get saved. Does that, does that make sense? So it's, it's fun for us to talk about, but I wouldn't, that, that's not something I'd be out in the street talking with a lost person about, you know. So but there's something very praiseworthy about looking back and saying there's never a moment that I wouldn't have right. been not saved at some yeah. point in time. It's a glorious thing. It's, it's and it and it plays it. back into the idea of, it, if, if you, I don't like calling it eternal security, but the perseverance of the saint, I can't be lost. Why? Because eternally, before the world was even built, I was in the plan of God, and you were in the plan of God. That's remarkable. And so it gives us greater hope, too, for those around us that we know that aren't saved, that we're praying and trusting that these are, the, these, are God, these are people Jesus came for. And I might not see it. It may be at the end of, it could be deathbed. It could, who knows? It's not, our, it's not our business and our role. We just trust that the people that God has eternally uh, preordained will be saved. And that's a glorious thing. And there's, that's why Romans 8 says, there's therefore nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. How could it? It's eternal. You can't do something to undo that. But I do think it's, and, and, and I think it's important to say, to be biblical, when you got born again and saved, then it's correct for you to think, I was hell bound. I mean, I was eternally, I would have been lost and I would have been lost apart from Christ because that's correct. The Bible condemns you under sin and the Bible condemns all under sin and the Bible condemns everyone to be at enmity with God and to be unjust and unholy. All those things that the law does, you felt the weight of that. That's why you came to Christ. That's why we continually hold the law up and we preach the law because it will... um, in in that proper usage, it will it will bring the people of God to Christ, because you will recognize there's no other way for me to survive. How how am I going to obey this law that I've already broken? Because you're already condemned as a lawbreaker, you can't undo that, and so that's why you look to Christ and uh, trust Him to remove the burden of the law that has condemned you. And that's why we can still say, but the law is good and right and holy because it brings sinners to Christ. It's, it's, the, it's the schoolmaster, as Paul called, I think, in Galatians, the, the pedagogos, which is like the, the one who brings the students to the school so they can be educated. The law did that for us. It brought us... So it's important that we preach that and teach the law because um, in its um, in, in that usage of it, in its first usage of proper usage, it condemns us, it pushes us down. That's a weight, which again, I know I've said this before, which I think Christ was talking about when he said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Because he's taking off that yoke and the burden of the law and saying, I kept it for you. Now you just look to me. And every time you fail, you look to me. When you realize you can't keep the law, you look to me. And every time you do fail 
You know, like John said, I write to you, brothers, that you sin not. But when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because you're going to. But when you do, and it's not a reason to sin, so Paul dealt with that. Well, then shouldn't we just sin that grace might abound? God forbid. No. Because you're new. You're different. You wouldn't, as a child of God, no. You will sin, but that's not what you want. Because the Holy Spirit gives you uh, repentance. And you look back to Christ. And Christ, because of what's happened, we, we want to follow him. And we fail, but we, we're thankful that he's brought us into his family. And as a father, when we fail, he doesn't kick us out of the family. He brings us to repentance and, and loves on us and brings us back in. And that's the good news of the gospel. And then we have, the, we have the law before us as a guide. As a Christian, again, the law is good because it is our guide to say, this is how you're supposed to live. The, the way Jesus talked to the, the, the woman caught in adultery. Where your accusers? But then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That's the, that's the law that Jesus gives. And again... We go and we sin more, even though he said don't sin anymore. But our hope is in Christ and not in our ability to be good. So, um, any questions about that? I talked the whole time and haven't given you a chance to respond. It's all good. Well, um, I just want to read this section and then I don't know how much time I'll spend on it because we've kind of talked about it already a couple of lessons ago. In his work of mediation, Christ acts according to both natures by each nature doing what is appropriate to itself. Even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to the one nature sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. In other words, you don't read in the Bible necessarily where they, they're saying, for example, when Jesus was, the crowd wanted to apprehend Jesus but suddenly he just wasn't in the crowd anymore. They don't say, but because Jesus is God, he wasn't in the crowd anymore. But we know that Jesus is God and he is man. So at times Jesus wept, and at times he's tired and he's hungry, and other times he's disappearing out of crowds and we don't know how, or he's, you know. We have, yes. And um, he's touching blind people and they're, they're made to see are lame and they're able to walk or he looks at Philip and says uh, when you were under the tree I knew who you were and uh, I mean not Philip but Nathaniel and what it's saying and, and it's protecting against heresy so we may talk about it a little bit I mean it is important because there's been heresy throughout church history that's tried to separate those natures well you can't have 100% God 100% man so there's times when he was a man times when he was God and times when the God left him and times when it came back on him and so they're, they're pointing out, no, no, no. What we believe as Baptists is that because um, he acts according to both natures, he became human and took on flesh, he had to, right? It's a consequent absolute necessity that he do so. But he never ceased being God. But the Bible writers, because he is so much the essence of who he is, they could write about Jesus in 
whether it's his divinity or whether it's his humanity because it's one and the same. Does that make sense? Because we know that his humanity died, but you can't kill God. So God didn't die. Humanity died. So, and, that, and like I said, that's pretty important because there's a lot of church history where, and still is, some heresy about that, about the teaching of Christ in his nature. All right. Any questions?